This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is a download from BBC Learning English. To find out more, visit our website. Six Minute English from bbclearningenglish.com Hello, this is Six Minute English from BBC Learning English. I'm Rob. And I'm Georgina. Now, Georgina, you recently mentioned in one Six Minute English programme about NFTs and that you had a collection of Pokemon cards when you were younger. Yes, I did. And I still can't find them. Why did you bring that up? Well, Pokemon started out as a video game series that turned into anime movies and trading cards, among other things. And in this programme, we're talking about a video game character that is iconic, a word which means widely known and recognised. That character's name is Super Mario. Ah, I spent many hours of my childhood playing with Nintendo's Super Mario or his rival Sega's Sonic the Hedgehog. Now these days, video games are everywhere and people of all ages enjoy playing them. There's also competitive e-sports events where gamers compete for what are often considerable amounts of money. Yes, and there are also streamers that appear on platforms like Twitch and YouTube who have become celebrities in their own right. Talking about celebrities, I have a question about the famous character we're talking about in this programme. Many people remember Super Mario Brothers as being the first time we saw Mario, but he first appeared in another game. Which was it? Was it A, The Legend of Zelda, B, Donkey Kong, or C, Pokemon? I'm not sure about that. I can't remember him being in Pokemon, so I'll go for A, The Legend of Zelda. OK, Georgina, we'll find out if you're right at the end of the programme. So, we established at the start of the programme that these days, the video games industry is thriving. True, but it wasn't always that way. It's hard to imagine now, but in the 1980s, the console market was struggling, particularly in the US. Keza MacDonald, video games editor for The Guardian newspaper, explains what was happening in the early 1980s. Here she is on the BBC World Service programme, You and Yours, speaking with Peter White. Well, back then, especially in America, there had been a flood of games that were just not very high quality. Um, one of the uh, games that often cited as, as a factor in the collapse was this game called E.T. on the Atari, <laughs> which um, was so bad that they ended up burying thousands of copies of it in the desert because nobody bought them. <laughs> and uh, so we'd had, the, especially in America, this didn't happen so much in Europe, but in America, there'd just been lots and lots of software. None of it was all that great. There, wasn't, there hadn't been anything really revolutionary in some years. So the video game boom was really falling off a cliff and Nintendo is what rescued it in the US especially. Keza MacDonald used the term a flood of, meaning a large number in a short period of time, to describe the number of games that were coming out. She used cited, which means referenced or noted, when talking about the game E.T. being a reference for a factor in the collapse of the console market. And she said boom, a sudden period of growth. So as E.T. was mentioned, as a factor in the collapse, many people say that Super Mario Brothers was the reason that video games really took off, especially in the US. Hmm, it's interesting to consider what might have been if his creator, Shigeru Miyamoto, had never created that character. 
The question is, why is that game so popular? What made it so fun to play? Here is Keza McDonald speaking again with Peter White on the BBC World Service programme You and Yours, explaining why Mario is just so popular and what makes the original game so satisfying to play. It's just such a joy to play. It's running and jumping, and it's the joy of movement. When when you play even the original Super Mario Brothers, you just feel this sense of joy in your movement. And it's one of the it's one of the greatest games ever made. And a lot of games from 35 years ago are basically unplayable now. They might have been a step to something greater, but Mario is one of those few that really holds up today as well. That did then. Keza McDonald said that some games from 35 years ago are unplayable, so not possible to play them. But she said that Mario holds up, a term used to say that something's standards or quality has not lessened. It certainly does hold up. In fact, I played it the other day and I had lots of fun with it. It reminded me of my childhood, and it's still as good now as it was then. Which reminds me of your quiz question, Rob. Yes. In my quiz question, I asked Georgina which game had the first appearance of that famous plumber Mario. I went for A, The Legend of Zelda. Ah, which is wrong, I'm afraid. Mario's first appearance was in Donkey Kong, and his creator Shigeru Miyamoto never thought he would be that popular. Well, I guess we've already learnt something today. Let's recap the vocabulary from today's program about Super Mario, starting with iconic, famously associated with something and instantly recognisable. Then we had a flood of, which means a large amount of something in a short space of time. Cited means reference as or noted. Boom relates to explosion and means a short period of sudden growth. Unplayable describes something that can't be played or a game that is very difficult to enjoy. And finally, holds up means that the quality or standards of something hasn't changed and still looks good or plays well. That's all for this program. Bye for now. Bye. Six minute English from the BBC. You're listening to TED Talks Daily. I'm Elise Hugh. Director and writer Munya Akil had to question the meaning of home when her hometown of Beirut was thrown into crisis. Her talk from TED Women 2021 encourages all of us to dig into sorrow as a wellspring of joy, connection, and art. Hey, do you love TV? Of course you do. We all love TV. It's the new books. But how much do you know about the people who write your favorite TV shows? I'm Ben Blacker, the host of the Writers Panel podcast, the definitive insider's guide to the art and business of writing for television. And over the course of 500 episodes over the past 11 years and counting, I've talked to legendary TV writers, folks like Norman Lear, Vince Gilligan, Key and Peele, Amy Sherman Palladino, about how they got their start, how they survived the politics of the writers' room, and how they made the greatest TV shows of this generation or any generation. The Writers Panel is available on the Forever Dog Podcast Network and wherever you find podcasts. So, as you know, my comfort zone isn't here. It's usually on set behind a camera. So,、um, yes, I was born in Beirut, Lebanon. It's、uh, what I call my home country. It's the place where my first memories are, where my parents live,、uh, where my first loves are, my first heartbreaks. I've lived in other places and. I've made them home, like New York, which I've fallen in love with, and in.、Uh, 
but um, I always felt like my biggest strength came from the fact that I knew exactly where I came from, and that knowledge was very important to me because it really defined uh, who I am as a woman. But growing up in Lebanon comes with a price. I think this tension and this um, what I have between me and my home country. Uh, is something I cherish, but it's also a burden, because Lebanon is a place with a very contradicting soul.、Uh, it's a place filled with chaos and poetry, a place where、uh, hope and despair coexist in really strange ways. It's also a place where joy and, and sorrow are inseparable,、uh, like Khalil Gibran in one of my favorite poems by our national. Poet mentions that well from which comes our laughter is also the one that hosts our tears, and I think today more than ever this is true in Lebanon because after everything that happened,、uh, it feels like a land of broken dreams, but filled with so many dreams nonetheless. And growing up in Lebanon, we were constantly on the verge of the worst. We felt like that silence between a crisis and the other. Was almost more agonizing than the crisis itself, and that really defined us as human beings because we really live every day as if it were our last, and that's in the best and in the worst kind of ways. <laughs> I think this is where the screenwriter in me was born, at home in Lebanon, in the streets, at home in the house I grew up in, because I became fascinated with human flaws and vulnerabilities and the truth that comes. Out of us in times of crisis and when we're put under pressure, and、uh, when at home I saw the people I love the most, my parents, be real, I felt free somehow. It wasn't always pretty, but at least it felt safe. Like this is a place where we can be ourselves. <laughs> in, <laughs> but in 2020,、uh, when the pandemic、uh, hit the planet, we all started questioning what home meant. My parents were architects and are architects, so they also added to what I felt home was, to my definition of home. Because、uh, before following my own dreams,、uh, being a filmmaker, I was a good daughter, a good girl, and I followed my father's dreams. And I studied architecture and finished. And what I learned in architecture school is how much you can learn、uh, about people, about their story, about societies. Through the spaces that they inhabit, through every object, every frame, every wall, through the ground, through the streets. But what do you do when you feel like the ground on which you're standing might not hold? In the world of today, filled with political instability, climate disasters, where our spaces are constantly ravaged and threatened, how do you create a sense of home? In 2020, when the pandemic hit, we all felt, or at least those of us lucky enough to have homes. We all went inside, and that became our safe space. The outside world、uh, became the threat. The air, the people, this invisible monster was outside. But as long as you were tucked in your bubble, you were safe. And I'm talking about those of us who were lucky enough not to live locked with an abuser,、uh, victims of domestic abuse. So for those of us, the safe bubble was inside, or so we thought. On August 4th,、uh, 2020, in Lebanon. Our lives changed. In a split of a second,、uh, one of the largest non-nuclear explosions pulverized our port and destroyed half our city, killing many people and destroying homes and creating losses that we can't even count until today. 
and there still hasn't been accountability for what happened, even though it was the result of years of political mismanagement and corruption. I happened on that day to be in Beirut, in the center of Beirut, in the office, because I was in pre-production for my first feature film, Costa Brava, Lebanon, a film we had been working on for a few years, really hard, uh, and a film that, ironically, <laughs> is the story of a family that decides to leave Beirut, a place that doesn't feel safe to them anymore, to create a utopic mountain home, a self-sustainable mountain home, away from a city that has broken their hearts. And then what happened is that uh, their utopia is completely destroyed when the government decides to build an illegal garbage landfill right outside their home, bringing that reality to their front doors, the one they had been running away from for many years. The family finds itself again confronted to this destruction that it had been trying to avoid, uh, facing everything it was trying to protect itself from. I was with the crew, the cast and, and the crew of the film, in the office in Gemeza in Beirut, when at 6.07, in a split of a second, our lives were turned upside down. We went from a creative meeting filled with passion and love and, and excitement to looking for each other on the rubble, wondering if we had all made it alive. Luckily, we did, uh, and we were much luckier than a lot of people in the same street, My cinematographer, Joe, almost lost his eye, and everyone was injured. We got out of the street uh, and uh, realized that the explosion was not just next to the office, but everywhere, and that's when we understood how big it was. Walking down the street like zombies around that time, surrounded by broken, confused, stunned faces, felt like walking in the set of a movie I don't want to direct or be a part of. Everyone's homes, their private spaces, their frames, their walls were dust on which we were walking on. We stopped everything at that moment because we lost all of our coordinates, all of a sense of home, everything that we had worked for. So what we did is we just took a moment for two months and each of us took time to grieve, to assess the losses, whether it was the office or all of us. We, anyway, how can you even... Think about being creative or, or making anything at a moment where you feel like you're living hell in, in the middle of hell. You cannot create amid such chaos. At that moment, my mother, my hero on that day, because it's only thanks to her that some of us made it to a hospital, uh, who has lived civil wars, reminded me of a book I read in architecture school, uh, Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino. I'll read to you the quote that she uh, read to me at that time, when she saw the despair me and my team were in. The hell of the living is not something that will be. If there is one, it is what is already here, the hell we live every day, that we make by being together. There are two ways to escape suffering it. The first is easy for many. Accept the hell and become such a part of it that you can no longer see it. The second is risky and demands constant vigilance and apprehension. Seek and learn to recognize who and what in the midst of hell are not hell, then make them endure and give them space. Luckily, these people were not too far from me. They were the cast and the crew of this film. So we met all together and brainstormed. We thought, should we make this film or not? 
uh, it seemed crazy to make anything around that time in Lebanon because the country was experiencing it until now, its worst economic crisis since its inception. Uh, the loss and the destruction and the PTSD we were all going through after the explosion, and also the global pandemic, which was hitting the country really hard, which we had almost forgot about because of everything else that was happening. But at a moment where existing felt like an act of resistance, we felt like making this movie was very important uh, because it would mean regain agency and feel like they haven't taken everything from us. Uh, and as Maya Angelou says, there's nothing more agonizing than an untold story hanging inside of you, not directly quoting. And I think we really needed to regain a sense of order, refine our coordinate, a sense of home. And like after World War I, a lot of European artists went back into classicism, trying to run away from this feeling of destruction that the war had brought in and stepped away from the experimentalism that came before. I think we used creativity to rebuild those pillars and that order. So it was a crazy decision, but we did it uh, because we wanted to and because something was driving us. So we went and made the film against all odds. Uh, and uh, it was hard, it was filled with obstacles, but it was beautiful because at a moment where uh, we had missed human connection and at a moment where our societies are becoming uh, more fragile and loveless, we were able to create a moment of warmth, of love and magic at a moment where it was hard to find any. And I think that that was very special because telling this story together gave us... Um, a sense of home again. It felt like the set became that safe space, that family. And it was as real and as, as raw as the home I was telling you about, because we were all filled with creativity and a desire to make something, but we were also all grieving and broken. So that was uh, me, again, realizing the beauty of being surrounded by people as real as me, even if it was not always pretty. <laughs> but it was real. And I think that courage and... Um, we, all, we were always told, go, for, uh, go to that place that is the place of great pain because it's also a, great, a place of great inspiration. I think that it's easy uh, to hear and to say, but it's really hard to achieve. I think that courage to go there, to go where it hurts when you're so broken, came to me from those people, this cast and crew, that um, really, really uh, gave me the courage to want to tell the story and reminded me of the importance of it. I actually had twins who played the role of Rim, the protagonist of the film, and they both shared the role. And I think working with them was a great learning experience for me because uh, that's the beauty of being a filmmaker. You work with people from different ages and different backgrounds all the time. And working with them, for all of us on set, was a reminder of the importance of remaining hopeful and keeping the sense of wonder, especially for their generation, because whatever world we're fighting for today, they will be able to benefit from. And so I know that we all deal with loss and rebuilding a home that we lost in different ways. For me, it was through human connection and understanding that it wasn't necessarily a space anymore. And I think for you, it might be something else. We all channel that in different ways. But for me, that moment of joy, uh, of sorrow, of freedom, of creativity, that moment between the action and the cut, uh, that's what felt like home. And I'm very grateful for that. Thank you.
It's TED Talks Daily. I'm your host, Elise Hugh. Music, like math, is a universal language, something that speaks to our hearts, minds, and memories. Today's talk from the cellist Stephen Sharp Nelson is a reminder of that. He speaks movingly about the way music still connects us with our loved ones, no matter where they are. Stay through to the end of this 2020 TEDx Salt Lake City talk when he brings his speech home in the language we all understand. Like TED Talks? You should check out the TED Radio Hour with NPR. Stay tuned after this talk to hear a sneak peek of this week's episode. So many people in our lives make our life purpose possible and necessary. I'd like to take you on a musical journey that connects you with one of those people. Someone you love dearly. Someone you wanted to have a little more time to love. Someone you wish was still with you. My mom. I was happy when I was with my mom. She's one of the greatest lyrical sopranos that's ever lived, ineffably gifted with the voice of an angel. She could have had center stage anywhere, anywhere in the world, but she gave that up to be my mom. She gave me this stage with you today. She's been by my side when I've been particularly nervous for a big performance touring the world with the piano guys or when I've been off the stage and struggling and at the mercy of anxiety and depression, or when I felt like I'm, I'm under the thumb of this perniciously pervasive demon known as inadequacy that so many of us are fighting. She's gently nudged me forward right at the moment when I felt like giving up. So I'm a musician today not only because of what she gave up for me, but also because of what she continues to give me. And that support is profound and especially powerful. Why? Because it comes from a place about which we know very little. My mother fell to the floor of our home suddenly in this really scary seizure. Such an intense moment. My, my dad rushed her to the ER. Brain tumor. Big one. Doctors didn't know how long we'd have with her. One, two, maybe three years before we'd lose her. But due to her strength and a series of indescribable miracles, she defied that prognosis and fought that brain tumor for 18 years. Thank you. <laughs> she fought that brain tumor for 18 years, but think about it. Some of those years were really rough, as you can imagine. But we learn to be grateful for every day. Now, when her final curtain call came, I couldn't applaud because I wasn't ready for it to end. So after she passed away, I spent some time being angry, bitter, resentful, confused at these years that were stolen from me, at the chance I never had to know the soprano in this beautiful woman, to hear her sing in full voice without pain to perform with her. Oh, I would have loved that. Just me playing the cello right next to her, just looking up at her beautiful face singing. Oh, I would have loved that chance. I never got that chance. So I struggled with this. I really did. But then I discovered something. Something that has compelled me to be on the stage talking with you today. Isn't it true that our life's most sublime melodies tend to be written during the dark symphonies of our struggle? And in this dark symphony, 
I found a healing for Mata. The very thing that had wounded me was the same thing that healed me. The power of music. You see, since then, I've spent some very special time with my mom. <laughs> Through music, I've discovered that the people we've lost aren't lost at all. And the holes their absence leaves inside us are not meant to be filled by someone or something else. Instead, they are intentional, mindful places meant for us to go, to take refuge, to reconnect and to reunite with our loved ones. To find them there, still interested, still invested, and somehow still involved in the details of our lives. That is where I found my mom. Now, I can't prove this to you with science. I, there's no chance. And spirituality helped me take the first step. But ultimately, you just have to go there yourself in your own way. And music, the power of music can act as a guide for you on this incredible, important journey. If you're willing, I'd like to go there together right now. And I want to show this to you because I, I want you, if you need to use this later on, when you're on your own in a quiet place and you've got a song that's personal to you, I want to show you how this can work. I'd like you to close your eyes, if you would, please. Choose a loved one you want to connect with. It could be someone you've already been thinking about as I've been talking. I want you to picture a favorite place, a relaxing place. It could be a place that you both adored together. <laughs> Now picture your loved one sitting or standing across from you. Make this as detailed as you can, it's important. What are they wearing? What is their posture, their expression? Is it a smile? Is it a look of concern? Or is hope written in their eyes? I want you to hold this image in your mind. And you could do so continually with your eyes closed or you can open them, it's up to you. But I want you to live in this place while I play for you one piece of music. It's a piece I've never performed in public. Why? Because I feared that I wouldn't do it justice. It's my mom's favorite. And as I play, I want you to have a conversation with this beautiful person across from you. I want you to, to hold their hand, share a long hug, ask for forgiveness, or finally give of it freely if you need to. Ask for help with something you're struggling with. At the very least, express gratitude for how they've made you possible and necessary. Express love. My mother is a soprano. With the voice of an angel. And that voice for me is still sweet and rings with a resounding relevance. And as I play, I hope you can hear the voice of your own angel and let music find someone you've lost.
When Katrina Spade learned how much cremation pollutes the planet, she decided to come up with a different burial method. It was definitely like a light bulb moment. There was no question in my mind that we could compost humans. Stories and ideas about what lies beneath. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Subscribe or listen to the TED Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. TED Talks Daily is hosted by me, Elise Hugh, and produced by TED. Theme music is from Allison Layton Brown, and our mixer is Christopher Fazy Bogan. We record the talks at TED events we host or from TEDx events, which are organized independently by volunteers all over the world. And we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or email us at podcasts at TED.com. PRX. This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is a download from BBC Learning English. To find out more, visit our website. Six Minute English from bbclearningenglish.com Hello, this is Six Minute English from BBC Learning English. I'm Neil. And I'm Georgina. When we think about romantic Hollywood movies, there have been some famous examples over the years. There are classic black and white romance movies like 1951's A Streetcar Named Desire and The Love Affair between Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman in Casablanca, made in 1942. You're really showing your age, Neil. What about more recent movies like When Harry Met Sally or that famous kiss between the characters Jack and Rose in the film Titanic? In their time, all these movies were blockbusters, very popular and successful films which sold millions of cinema tickets. And this success was often due to the on-screen romance between the leading actors. In romantic movies, love is in the air. Couples hold hands and kiss, or in other words, they show intimacy, a close romantic or sexual relationship. But while real couples kiss and hold hands all the time, actors in movies are just pretending to be intimate, and this can lead to problems. Yes, whether it's a kiss or a full nudity sex scene, filming intimate scenes for movies and TV is a delicate business, as we'll be finding out in this programme. But first, Georgina, I have a quiz question for you. Let me guess, another black and white classic from the 1950s? Yes, 1953 to be exact. This movie won the Oscar for Best Picture. The film thrilled audiences with a famous beach kiss between actors Burt Lancaster and Deborah Kerr as they rolled around in the waves. But what was the movie? Was it A, West Side Story, B, From Here to Eternity, or C, Singing in the Rain? Well, 1953 was long before I was born, but I'll guess B, From Here to Eternity. OK, Georgina, we'll find out later on if that's right. In 1953, an on-screen kiss was still considered a little naughty. But by 2020 and the filming of the BBC television dramas Normal People and I May Destroy You, things had changed. Nudity and sexual content had become commonplace. Eta O'Brien worked on both these BBC dramas. She describes herself as an intimacy coordinator, someone who helps actors and directors plan and film intimate scenes. Listen as she gives her definition of intimacy to BBC World Service programme The Conversation. A handhold, a stroke of the cheek, you know, through to a hug, and then obviously right the way through to intimate content. It might be familial content. 
of um, an adult to a child. It could be the content of perhaps a medical procedure, someone having, you know, um, a mammogram, or it could be right the way through to intimacy, you know, simulated sexual content. Eater's definition of intimacy is very wide, including hugging and stroking, gently touching someone in a pleasurable way. It also includes simulated sex. Movie actors aren't really having sex, they're simulating it, pretending to do something so that it looks real but is not. Just like dance sequences in musicals, intimate movie scenes are planned and choreographed beforehand, so the director, film crew and above all the actors are comfortable with what's being filmed. But recent scandals about the on-set behaviour of some British and American film stars have highlighted how delicate a balance this is. Here's Eta O'Brien again talking to BBC World Service's The Conversation about the different ways that intimate scenes are filmed on either side of the Atlantic in Britain and in the US. With actors from the US, what they do have, what they put in place, is that with each and every intimate scene, we create a nudity stroke stimulated sex waiver for each and every scene. And I actually really like that way of working. In the UK, actors are asked to sign a nudity clause, and generally that's an overall for the whole of a production. British actors sign only one document with a nudity clause to cover the whole film. But in the US, actors sign a waiver, a legal document that allows or prevents an action that is different from how things are usually done. Eta thinks it's better if the actors agree to each and every scene, and she uses the phrase each and every because it emphasises that she means every single one. In this way, there is no confusion about what should or shouldn't happen on set, leaving the director and actors free to make dramatic and romantic blockbusters. You mean like that famous beach scene, kissing and rolling in the waves, Neil? Ah, you mean my quiz question when I asked you... What was the name of the 1953 movie featuring a famous beach kiss between movie stars Burt Lancaster and Deborah Kerr? What did you say, Georgina? I said it was B, From Here to Eternity. Which is the right answer. Well done, Georgina. So you do like classic black and white movies after all. Not really, Neil, but I remember my granddad watching it. OK, let's recap the vocabulary from this programme about intimacy, a close romantic or sexual relationship. A blockbuster is a very popular and successful movie or a book that sells many copies. If you stroke someone's face, you touch it gently in a pleasurable way. To simulate means to do or make something that looks real but is not. In the US, a waiver is a legal document to either allow or prevent something being done in a different way from usual. And you can use the phrase each and every to emphasise that you mean every single one of something. That's all for this romantic edition of Six Minute English, but join us here again soon for more topical chat and useful vocabulary. Bye for now. Bye. Six Minute English from the BBC. This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is a download from BBC Learning English. To find out more, visit our website. Six Minute English. From BBC Learning English. Hello, this is Six Minute English from BBC Learning English. I'm Sam. And I'm Neil. On Saturday mornings, I love going to watch football in the park. 
the problem is, when it's cold and rainy, I look out the bedroom window and go straight back to bed. Well, instead of going to the park, why not bring the park to you? Imagine watching a live version of the football match at home in the warm with friends. Sound good, Sam? Mm, sounds great. But how can I be in two places at once? Is there some amazing invention to do that? There might be, Sam, and it could be happening sooner than you think, thanks to developments in VR or virtual reality. According to Facebook boss Mark Zuckerberg, in the future we'll all spend much of our time living and working in the metaverse, a series of virtual worlds. Virtual reality is a topic we've discussed before in Six Minute English, but when Facebook announced that it was hiring 10,000 new workers to develop VR for the metaverse, we thought it was time for another look. In this programme, we'll be hearing two different opinions on the metaverse and how it might shape the future. But first, I have a question for you, Neil. According to a 2021 survey by gaming company Thrive Analytics, What percentage of people who try virtual reality once want to try it again? Is it A, 9%, B, 49%, or C, 79%? I guess with VR you either love it or hate it, so I'll say B, 49% of people want to try it again. Okay, I'll reveal the correct answer later in the programme. But what Neil said is true. People tend to either love virtual reality or hate it. Somebody who loves it is Emma Riddestad, CEO of Warpen, a company which develops VR technology. Here she is telling BBC World Service programme Tech Tent her vision of the future. In 10 years, everything that you do on your phone today, you will do in 3D, through your glasses, for example. You will be able to do your shopping, you will be able to meet your friends, you will be able to work remotely with whomever you want. You will be able to share digital spaces, share music, share art, share projects in digital spaces between each other. And you will also be able to integrate the digital objects in your physical world, making the world much more digital than it is today. Virtual reality creates 3D, or three-dimensional experiences, where objects have the three dimensions of length, width and height. This makes them look lifelike and solid, not two-dimensional and flat. Emma says that in the future, VR will mix digital objects and physical objects to create exciting new experiences, like staying at home to watch the same football match that is simultaneously happening in the park. She blends the words physical and digital to make a new word describing this combination. Fidgetal. But while a fidgetal future sounds like paradise to some, others are more sceptical. They doubt that VR will come true or be useful. One such sceptic is technology innovator Dr Nicola Millard. For one thing, she doesn't like wearing a VR headset, the heavy helmet and glasses that create virtual reality for the wearer, something she explained to the BBC World Service's tech tent. There are some basic things that we need to think about. So how do we access it? So uh, the reason that sort of social networks took off was, we, you know, we've got mobile technologies that let us use it. Now, obviously, one of the barriers can be the VR or, or AR headsets. So VR, I've always been slow sceptical about. I called it vomity reality for a while because frankly 
Uh, I usually need a bucket somewhere close if you've got a headset on me. And also, do do I want to spend vast amounts of time in those those rather unwieldy headsets? Now, I know they're talking AR as well, and obviously that doesn't not necessarily need a headset. But I think that we're we're seeing some quite Im- immersive environments coming out at the moment as well. Nicola called VR vomity reality because wearing a headset makes her feel sick, maybe because it's so unwieldy. Difficult to move or wear because it's big and heavy. She also makes a distinction between VR, virtual reality, and AR, which stands for augmented reality, tech which adds to the ordinary physical world by projecting virtual words, pictures, and characters, usually by wearing glasses or with a mobile phone. While virtual reality replaces what you hear and see, augmented reality adds to it. Both VR and AR are immersive experiences. They stimulate your senses and surround you so that you feel completely involved in the experience. In fact, the experience feels so real that people keep coming back for more. Right. So, in my question, I asked Neil how many people who try VR for the first time want to try it again. I guessed it was about half, forty-nine percent. Was I right? You were wrong. I'm afraid. <sighs> the correct answer is much higher. Seventy-nine percent. Of people would give VR another try, I suppose, because the experience was so immersive, stimulating, surrounding, and realistic. Okay, Sam. Let's recap the other vocabulary from this program on the metaverse: a kind of augmented reality, reality which is enhanced or added to by technology. Three D objects have three dimensions, making them appear real and solid. Digital is an invented word which combines the features of physical and digital worlds. A sceptical person is doubtful about something. And finally, unwieldy means difficult to move or carry because it's so big and heavy. That's our six minutes up in this reality, anyway. See you in the metaverse soon. Goodbye. Six minutes English from BBC Learning English.